for your kind words. Un I don't feel that I deserve them, but uh, I'll try to live up to expectations. Um, before I start, uh, I, what I'd like to do, just briefly digress and explain uh, to uh, some of you at least here what Earth Science is, is because probably when most of you were here, it was the Department of uh, Geology and Mineralogy, and it was, I'm sure they'll forgive me for saying this, full largely of, of um, people who sat on crystalline rocks of the upper crust and thought warm thoughts about deep time. Since then, um, Earth Sciences has, uh, well, it was called geology then, but it is essentially the, the discipline that studies the present constitution of the Earth, uh, its history, and the history of life upon the Earth, and the um, physical causes for the changes that have taken place on Earth. Um, we, in a way, uh, consider how habitable planets come into being and, and how to preserve those habitable planets. Um, and the subject has grown immensely, and we feel a great debt of honour, a debt of debt, to the previous Vice-Chancellor, John Hood, who very strongly supported the growth of our sciences uh, at a difficult time in the, uh, the university's history. And we've just moved in. In fact, I'm exaggerating. In 55 minutes, we will have finished the move to our brand new uh, sciences department, which is seen here. Um, it's the flagship of the redevelopment of the science area, and we've, been, uh, we've had a wonderful experience with the internationally renowned architects, Wilkinson Air. Those of you who are watching the Great North uh, run last weekend will have noticed their wonderful bridge at Gateshead. But they're also pretty good at designing laboratory buildings, it turns out, and interacting with us. So that's just a little plug. If you see the strange-looking building on, the, on South Parks Road, that's what it's about, and that's where we carry out a large number of things... Uh, involving increasingly the mathematics, the physics, the chemistry, and the analysis of geological observations to do with our planet, as I said. So bear that breadth in mind as I now focus in on a rather narrower issue um, and talk about the influence of geology on, on Greece over the last uh, 6,000 years or so. Um, this, even though we'll mostly be talking about rocks and earthquakes and things that are quite familiar to us... Um, is an area where we've under, we've, our understanding has advanced a lot over the past 20, 30 years through the development of new measuring <coughs> techniques, new analytical techniques, and so on. Uh, and a lot of what we understand about where oil is formed, generated, and, and, uh, and recovered, a lot of what we understand about earthquakes, um, and a lot of what we understand about the way that the continents behave in general, which not as plates, as we'll discuss later on, um, has come from Greece largely because it happens by fortune of, of climate and rock type to be a place where it's very easy to see what's going on. Now, this is a picture of the largest exposed fault plane on the, the, the planet. Uh, it's a place called Arkitsa. It's, quite, it's near the National Road. And um, for those of you who drive up and down Greece... And one of the, uh, the uh, points that I'm going to be discussing is how when we uh, look at the, the geological history of Greece and of its faulting, we can actually learn a lot of things about the way that, that earthquakes work. You'd be forgiven for believing, if you, read, if you watch the television and read the newspapers, that, that the, world is a, the natural world is an inimical to human life and earthquakes just, you know, they're in business to kill people and, and, and volcanoes. We're all going to be wiped out by supervolcanoes if you 
watch Channel 4, and uh, if it isn't supervolcanoes, it's going to be tsunamis a thousand feet high washing over New York, and if it's not that, the fossils are going to get us. I, I mean, uh, <coughs> what I'm hoping to take you through here is a kind of virtual field trip. It's, it, it's, um, there, there's the members of the third year of a couple of years ago from the Earth Sciences Department examining this fault. We're not going to do the boring stuff with the hand lens and, you know measurements, but tell you how these faults work and what they've done for Greece. You know, what, are, what has the geology done for Greece? And as any of you have read the abstract to this talk uh, will, will recall, uh, the story is actually largely benign. There's a bit of a sting in the tail, but most of what's going on is quite, quite interesting and, and, and beneficial. Okay, we also need to know our volcanoes and uh, Santorini, many of you probably had the good fortune to visit. If you haven't, you should, but not between June and September when it's heaving with miserable people. Uh, but uh, it's, got, um, it's got a great, uh, again, like as I, as I said with the faults, uh, th there we will discuss them in our eruption later on in the talk. There's a cross-section through one of the, you can see practically everything that you can see in any volcano on Earth in Santorini. It's quite a remarkable place. Any, any physical feature of volcanic activity that you wish to see, you can either travel the world looking for it, or you go to Santorini and see all of them. I took a Japanese uh, postdoc here a couple of years ago, and I thought, you know, a very rigorous geology training, he dragged all over Japan, hundreds of volcanoes in Japan, and he looked at this and he said, I had no idea volcanoes were like this. All of ours are covered in trees, he said. So um, this you get the cross-section because of uh, the minute. Right. Now then, I'm actually going to start, though, 6,000 years ago. And why 6,000 years ago? Well, because 6,000 years ago, almost in the inverse of the Greek myths, Greece didn't emerge from the sea. Starting about uh, 18,000 years ago, large amounts of Greece disappeared under the sea. Uh, as you know, the, um, the, the, um, the Ice Ages, here's a picture of... Here's a picture of uh, time going forwards uh, to the present day in the units of hundreds of thousands of years. So over the last, uh, well, roughly 2.6 million years, the ter surface temperature of the Earth and the sea level have fluctuated, as depicted here, with the um, sea level rising and falling by about 120 metres in, in, in between glacial cycles. The, uh, at the present, we're in a warm period, soon to get warmer, um, with the sea level at about the highest it has ever been uh, in the last two and a half million years. And we're going to start about um, 18,000 years ago when the sea level was about as low as it's been at any time in the last uh, um, two and a half million years or so. Now, <clears throat> at that time, if we were to draw a map of Greece, you'd see huge fertile plains, shown in the green here, um, covering large regions of the Aegean, the, the central, uh, the Cyclades, where the uh, culture, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. There we go. So, I hope it wasn't point, anyway. Um, um, right. So, so uh, large amounts of uh, central Greece, Cyclades and western Turkey were nice fertile plains in which nobody very much was living. I, I'm not sure how many people here are familiar with the archaeology of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, of uh, Mesolithic Greece, uh, but if I quote Barry Cunliffe's recent book, um, which I read last night on the 
basis that probably half of you have read it, and I'd better be careful. Um, this was a place where, by, all, by any reasonable measure, if, if uh, um, there, should be, there should be many, many people living. But basically, very few people were living there. And, and the effect of geology over the following 21,000 years was to remove an enormous amount of the surface, uh, surface height, habitable surface height of Greece. Um, I'll skip over. I always used to wonder when I was doing geography, a little parenthesis here, I think I may be the only professor of geology in the world to have failed every single exam beginning with GEO. <laughs> I, I failed my geography O-level, and I also failed my first-year geology exams at university, so I went and did physics instead. Um, anyway, sorry, the, and I could never understand in, in the geography lectures why they would do pictures like this of the distribution of surface height, because they all look the same. Well, I drew this last night, and, and, and it looks very unlike any other distribution of surface height that I've ever seen. We have a peak of surface height at about 110 metres below sea level, and a peak of surface height at about the present-day sea level. And if we convert, I'll come back to that later, there's a bit of a teaser as to why we have this very characteristic two-peak distribution of surface height. If you go and look at Britain, it'll, it'll, look, uh, it'll look like this. We don't have another peak down there. Uh, and most other parts of the world, we don't have a double peak near sea level. I'll come back to that. The point, for, just for the minute, is that an area about three times the size of Wales that was perfectly good habitable land was removed by, by the, the, basically the melting of the ice sheets 18,000 years ago. And what we were left with is very, very much less flat land to live on. Um, but what we were also left with was a very characteristic... Uh, distribution of topography, distribution of little isolated inlets um, in which independent city-states grew up. It's absolutely no accident, I think, that the, that the political model uh, that, that reached its peak in, well, let's not argue exactly when, but in you know, democratic pre-Macedonian uh, Greece, uh, grew up um, only there, only in Greece, in these very small, isolated packets of land on the edge of the sea, bounded by mountains. And what I'm going to do... So we, we have a sort of model for the evolution of, of, of society in which each place had enough space to live but was separated from its neighbour by a porous membrane, if you like. You could travel over the mountains to the place next door, but it was generally rather hard work to go and take a whole army and demolish people next door. So you had a sort of model for the evolution of city life, which mirrors rather nicely the model that a lot of people put forward now for the origin of life itself, as perhaps growing up in, in pumice, uh, in little spaces separated from one another, uh, which, uh, which different uh, uh, experiments in life could be tried out, some could succeed, some could fail, but also connected so that if something did work, you could expand. Now, what I want to do for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so is explain to you why the shape that was found at the beginning, essentially, of the, of the, of the Neolithic, about 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC, when sea level stabilised, why the shape we were left with was this particular handy shape for independent little uh, groupings to, to, to develop in. Because, of course, if you uh, did um, 
this same sea level rise experiment on, on the coast of the British Isles, you don't get the same shape at all. Of course, this is a global sea level change, so the same changes did happen in the British Isles, but with very different results in terms of the distribution of small, fertile plains uh, surrounded by mountains in Greece, and a very different pattern in, in, in other parts of the world. Okay, so the uh, tectonic setting. Tectonics simply comes from the same root as, as architecture, the building, the, 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 what the planet does in terms of building structures. The setting is, um, is a, of overall um, convergence between the African plate down at the bottom here. We should, strictly speaking, refer to it as, as the Nubian plate, but we'll uh, pass that to one side. Africa, rigid Africa down here. In fact, a plate that's pretty much the shape with a bit of sea added on, of the continent of Africa. So you, you know what the African plate looks like, even if you know nothing about plates. And then, up on the top here, uh, the Eurasian plate, another rigid piece of real estate that contains Europe and Asia. But what's going on in the region of the Aegean is the following. We have Turkey, Anatolia, moving westwards, and all these motions are relative to Eurasia. So we imagine a, driving a spike in the ground where we are, and we're watching these things going relative to us. So uh, Turkey's moving westwards at about 20 millimetres a year. Um, relative to Eurasia, the bottom part of the Aegean is moving southwestwards at about 40 millimetres a year. And the um, African floor is disappearing underneath Eurasia. So that's the general setting, and most of us read, well, earthquakes take place where plates rub past one another, and that's what uh, goes on. And so it's the plates moving past one another that cause the earthquakes. Well, the strange thing about Greece is that hardly any of that generally accepted statement about the relationship between earthquakes and plates, hardly any of that is correct. There are a small number uh, of large-ish earthquakes, and we'll come back to them right at the end of the talk, that take place on the boundary where the two plates slide past each other. So around here, a very small number, perhaps five or six in the history, in recorded history of large earthquakes have taken place somewhere near that boundary. This is the kind of boundary that, that ought to generate these large earthquakes, such as the, Sumat the devastating Sumatra earthquake of, of 2004, the general uh, subduction zone earthquakes, for those of you who know the terminology. Greece is strange because it doesn't happen. There are many, instead, small earthquakes that take place along this boundary, and the red dots don't distinguish between the size of different earthquakes. These are all actually very small. If one of these was to go un off under the most um, unstable building in your local town, the building would be fine. These are magnitude threes and four earthquakes, very small. A lot of them, but small. The bad news that takes place in Greece, the earthquakes that do knock down houses and occasionally kill, kill people, take place in the interior of Greece, up to 500 kilometres away from the boundary between the two plates. And the questions really revolve around why do those earthquakes happen, uh, what is the characteristic size of those earthquakes, and what do they do to generate the, uh, the, the kind of countryside that we see in Greece. Well, the story... <coughs> Another little aside. The, one of the things that's happened with earth sciences over the past 50 years has been that we piggyback an enormous amount on the military. Uh, a lot of the exploration of the ocean floor was basically funded because the US Navy wanted to know where to hide submarines or alternatively where the Russians were putting theirs. Um, <coughs> 
And of course, you know a lot about, uh, about uh, GPS, which was originally a spy system until uh, President Clinton, not a spy system, but a classified system, which until President Clinton um, released the code, it wasn't a lot of good to us, but it's become a lot of good recently. And there are many other military uh, piggybacks that, that the uh, scientists have done, the measurement of gravity, uh, the satellite measurements of the surface of the ocean, and so on have all been put up for a military purpose, but uh, been perverted. And uh, we started in Oxford in 1988 with a small fund, a small grant from the, uh, the, the, um, from the university to investigate the Austro-Hungarian triangulation of Greece. Now, I don't know how many people uh, know what triangulation is, but it's simply measuring the shape of your countryside. And as the name of our triangulation survey uh, tells you, the Ordnance Survey, the reason that you measure the shape of your country is because um, if you're going to fight a battle, your artillery needs to know what the shape of the country is. So we all know we're measuring the shape of this. You know why the Austrians were measuring the shape of Greece in 1892. We all know where that ended in 1914 to 18, and, but they were measuring the shape of Greece uh, because they felt they would probably like to have it. Um, now, bless them, they published their observations and we've stumbled literally over the observations and some of the evidence for their measurements in 1988 and quickly wrote to the university and said, could we go back and measure the shape of Greece again, please? And they said, yes, well, provided it doesn't cost any more than £29,756, I think you'll find that your proposal will be successful. Because it was just before July the 31st that we asked them. So fortunately, we, we got um, the money. Which is, in those days, we went back to reoccupy the triangulation of Greece uh, with um, GPS instruments. Now, in those days, they were not the fashion item that they now are. Um, the, it was a two-mule job to carry a GPS receiver to the top of, of a mountain, um, which we, we did for a couple of weeks. We occupied a 16 points at the top of various mountains. This, it was wonderful. The, the, re, the reason that you know, incidentally, which mountains in ancient Greece were really, which were really the mountains that the, the historical, the, the mythical names are given to, was the triangulation of Austria. They were, took a lot of trouble to find out what all the mountains were really called and related to in classical time. Because if you go to Greece now, probably most of you know the mountains are either called Prophetes Elias, which is the prophet Elijah, because he descended to heaven, he ascended to heaven from the top of that mountain, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. Uh, or they're called Megalovuno, which means big mountain. Uh, so this guy found out, for example, this is Mount Eliconas, where the, um, uh, the muses used to hang out. And the Austro that's the Austro-Hungarian triangulation pillar on top of it, and that's the uh, unfashionable 1988 GPS antenna over there. And over there on the top of that mountain there... Macri Plagi, which doesn't have a classical name, uh, was another of these pillars. I say was because it's been a victim of the mobile phone fad and it's been, it's been bulldozed. Actually, it was knocked down and then carefully erected in the wrong place. But Anyway, at the time, 1988, we, we, it was in the same place the, the Austro-Hungarians had left it. We've been back to both of them several times in the last uh, 22 years. And the eastern Gulf of Corinth here, which is this blue strip of ocean, is stretching at about uh, six millimetres a year. Uh, we've determined that by measuring what the shape was in 1992, when we, 1988, when we first made these measurements, and what the shape was in 1892, when the Austro-Hungarians first made the measurements. Well, 
fast-forwarding over a lot of uh, measurements, some glamorous and good fun like the one that I've just been illustrated, and others a good deal less fun, we've now accumulated something like 250 measurements of uh, the rate at which the crust in Greece moves. Okay, and they're shown, I think they're all here, uh, though you won't be able to pick out all the arrows because some lie on top of each other. Each of these arrows lies on one of those pillars or a little brass mark that we've put in the ground and shows the movement of the ground here with respect to, uh, to Eurasia uh, with the arrow there corresponding to a, late, a speed of 40 millimetres a year. So in, in you know, old-fashioned units, an inch and a half a year or something like that. This is kind of nice because uh, it's a topical Commonwealth Games coming up and so on. If the marathon, which as you all know was run between, uh, between Marathon here and Athens in 490 BC, if the marathon uh, were run today over the same track, it would be 40 metres longer than it was in 490. <laughs> I, I, I would love to have the opportunity to discuss this with a marathon runner, but no, yeah. I, don't, I haven't had the chance. Actually, probably, you'll have noticed, I, I, don't, I tend to be a bit too flippant, and I probably would upset them if I were to discuss how they feel over the last 40 metres. But anyway, there we go. The, the, the stretch, so what's going on here, of course, is that Greece is, if you look at the length of the arrows over here, they're, they're quite short, and over here they're 40 millimetres a year. So Greece is essentially being stretched one and a half inches a year. And the way that the geology does it is by um, the upper part of the crust failing on faults, such as that big one that I showed you to begin with, uh, and the type of fault that, that, that fails, forgive me for using a technical term, because I forget not to use it later, I'll use it now, they're called normal faults, and they're called normal faults simply because those are the kind that you normally find in the South Wales coalfield. It doesn't mean anything else, okay? But they're, called, they're not particularly normal, but, but they're, they're, they are in South Wales. And they are in Greece, so they're the normal kind of faults you find in Greece. And what they do is they accommodate extension, as you can see in that little, little thing that was stretching for us, but also they change the relative surface height one side with respect to the other. So the, the, the ground underneath the fault uh, goes up, and the ground on top of the fault goes down. I'll come back to that sketch in a minute, but I'll just make a, a, a semi-serious aside for a moment about the distribution of those faults, the distribution of earthquakes. What we uh, have found from our measurements in Greece, and I should emphasize that this isn't, of course, something we do simply because we uh, are interested in the history of Greece or whatever, the kind of things that we learn from studying the earthquakes in Greece are transportable to the study of earthquakes elsewhere. Um, something that I think the, the world, if any, if any of you is in the insurance world, should pay attention to is that um, in the continental interiors, uh, these measurements, such as I've been describing here, that measure where the strain is building up, where things are stretching, are very good indicators also of where the future seismic hazard is. If you simply look at where earthquakes happen in the past, you're quite often surprised. Topically, the, the earthquake in New Zealand the other day was not at all where anybody expected it to be, but actually we've got some measurements just like this in New Zealand that showed you that it would happen there. Not when, but, but that the strain was building up. And the colours here, the, the red colours, the redder the picture there, the more rapidly the strain is building up, and I think uh, you can see that the black dots 
which are the epicenters of earthquakes, where the earthquakes went off over the last uh, 100 years or so, coincide really rather well with the areas where the crust is, is stretching. Now, that's just an aside. It actually, um, these kind of measurements uh, were predictive, but were no use. To, they weren't acted on uh, for the Haiti earthquake as well. It was known that that was a place where earthquakes would take place, even though it's not on a plate boundary, from exactly these kind of measurements, unless that nobody responded in time to the, to the scientific evidence. There's a whole other discussion to be had there about how one translates scientific knowledge into policy, but that's not the topic of today's talk. Okay, so here, here we go again. We, we're uh, our little picture of the normal faults Working, isn't working, there we go. Now that's what happens over many, many earthquake cycles. Typically these earthquakes take place about once every three or four hundred years. And what we can see here is that the mountains of Greece are formed as the, the rock on top essentially is slid away and slid down, in this case, underneath the water. So the typical shorelines that we see of Greece in fact, the, the big fault that I showed you at the beginning of my talk is just around the corner here. The shorelines um, uh, the, the, uh, are formed by the, the mountains being thrust up as a result of these earthquakes taking place. The, the, the bottom, the, the, I've tried, I'll say it, the, the, the hanging wall, the thing on top of the fault, drops down and forms these large um, <coughs> bays and very small strips of land where just the, the stuff falling off the hillside can just keep up with the subsidence form uh, along the edges of the mountains. So that's your typical sort of Greek city-state environment. There are a couple of exceptions. Athens grew to the size that it did because it's actually, for some reason or other, not prone to earthquakes and just a large, big area that, 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 that could had a, get a, a big enough hinterland to get a big city supported. But generally, this is your kind of uh, Greek uh, countryside. Now, Sorry, for some reason I can't move on. There we go. And we can see these faults in red all over Greece, and each one of these uh, is essentially forming its little fertile plain, protected from its neighbours by the high mountain fortress. Now, behind it. Now, this, of course, was something that... Um, that Themistocles and the, the, uh, the, the Greeks knew very well, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But I just want to do a little piece of, of, of advertisement for a moment of, for, for the physics of this process. Why, you might ask yourself, is all this stretching going on? I've, I've, I've asserted that it's happening, but I haven't given you a physical reason or even a kitchen physics reason for why it should be going on. What we think is the... What I think, and it's not universally accepted, I, I will admit, is the physical explanation for this is that rather than thinking of the continents as a set of rigid plates like the oceans, you know, strong things that never break, why don't you think of the continents as being rather weak? Think of, for example, Greece as a blob of syrup. Uh, considerably stickier than the syrup that you buy in the supermarket, but nonetheless, a blob of syrup. If I put a blob of syrup on a plate, it will flow out under its own weight. And essentially, the, the, the physical setting that I think is, applies to Greece, it also, in a very different uh, configuration, but the same idea applies to the way in which the Tibetan plateau works, as the, as the Chancellor was alluding to earlier. Um, Greece is essentially spreading under its own weight and flowing out over the much lower ground 
uh, to its southwest. I've put um, I've put this I've put the, the country up in this rather funny projection to emphasise the, 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 the sense that all of that movement is taking place towards a very a single very low part of the world. So the uh, images of syrup or brie or something sitting on a plate and flowing towards the lowest place around. Now, Themistocles and his mates didn't, uh, didn't know that, but they did know the topography, of the topography of their country remarkably well. And we'll be focusing for, in a moment or two on, on Thermopylae. Um, but I want just to show you what we've... Uh, this is just going to be a cartoon, um, but it's what we've, we, we've been able to work out by looking not just at the earthquakes, but also the, sh the way in which the shape of the land... Has, has changed with time, which we can read from the sediments and from the, from the faults. I'll show you a picture of what that part of the world looks like and how it evolved over the last, we think, probably two or three million years. So this is Google Earth. I don't know how many of you play with Google Earth, but it's one of them. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, so we're looking down the spine of central Greece from the north and over something like two and a half, three million years, the mountains of central Greece grew up. Here we can see uh, Parnassos, Mount Parnassos, where the, the poets go, uh, with, uh, along its foot, a very large fault, the Parnassos fault, uh, which produces the, the, the mountains on one side and the plain on the other side. So the large fertile plain in front of Parnassos is the equivalent of the large gulf here, the Gulf of Evia that we saw growing up in front of the fault that I showed you the picture of a few minutes ago. And here is Calidromon, the so-called beautiful road, over which, of course, those of you with the knowledge of the history of the Persian Wars will know, over which, ultimately, uh, Xerxes um, 10,000 were able to pass and get round the back of the, um, the, the Spartans. Okay. And as I said a moment ago, that was the only place, that, that, that was the only place in Greece where, where as they thought, they could, they could uh, force a, a conclusion. As you know, most of you, I'm sure, uh, it didn't work out that way, but eventually they did achieve their strategic goal down in the Gulf of Salamis, where they were able to catch the Persian navy in, in, shallow, in, in narrow waters and, and bring the war to a, essentially a successful conclusion. Back to my little teaser about that funny little double-headed curve of distribution of surface heights. What's actually going on, it seems to me, um, in Greece is this, there's a perpetual competition between uh, tectonics, building up these big mountains, erosion, knocking them down again, and sea level, fluctuating between up and down 100 metres every 100,000 years or so. Because if you go to Thermopylae now, this is what you see. Thermopylae is five kilometres from, uh, from the coast. This is the battle mound of Thermopylae right here. The photograph's taken from there. And there's five kilometres of ground there that was not there in 480 BC. Now, I think what's happening is that the mountains are throwing, uh, throwing sediment down into, into these, these gulfs at a tremendous rate, and we get two platforms built. It just depends uh, where, you, wh where you are, whether you're building a platform where the glacial, uh, at a glacial maximum, where you're building one 100 metres below sea level, or you're building one now at, at present-day sea level. So if the, uh, the Spartans, if, well, the Spartans and the Thespians, let's be fair, uh, had been here um, 
a few hundred years later, it would never have worked at all. They would never have been able to, uh, to fight the battle that they, that they wanted to fight. There was just a particular moment between, after sea level had stabilised, but before the forces of erosion had built up these plains, where they were able to fight that battle. It's an interesting little uh, nugget of history. There's a slight complication to this, of course. The, the, uh, the introduction of goats probably has had uh, some influence on the vegetation and thus on the speed of erosion. But I think the, um, the, um, the point of this, uh, this particular part of the talk is to have rambled to you a little bit about those three forces that are, that are dynamically changing the, 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 the shape of, of Greece on a t almost on the human timescale, certainly on the historical timescale. We've, we've got clear evidence of the, the uh, geology, of the tectonics of building up these, these little environments in which the city-states can, can survive, and the, uh, the influence of the destructional um, forces, the erosional forces, and changing the landscape. Enough of that. Let's move on to uh, the, the volcanoes. As I said a moment ago, well, at the beginning of the talk, it probably seems a long time ago to you now, uh, we were going to spend a bit of time talking about the Minoan eruption. The, uh, I've just faded out one of the beautiful uh, wall paintings from the Akrotiri excavations, which, alas, are still inaccessible, unless anybody knows to the contrary. I still, still can't get there. Yeah. Okay. For... Um, for my money, although this picture is often adduced as evidence that, uh, that Santorini was the, the lost city of Atlantis, for, for my money, I, I suspect that the, the, the Atlantis myth owes much more to, the, um, to the, uh, the, the loss of an area the size of Wales uh, at a rate of about uh, uh, five square kilometres a, a year. That's Oxford going once every year or two. Okay? I, I'm pretty sure that sea level rise that was responsible for the Atlantis myth, rather than the eruption of Santorini. But for, because if I remember to tell you this, I, I don't think anybody saw the eruption of Santorini. I'll tell you why at the end, although unfortunately I can't show you a picture of why I believe it. I just couldn't find it last night. I do apologise for that. Okay, the, the, um, there's the Akrotiri excavations when we could get inside them, shortly before the brand new roof fell down. Um, Yes, it, you know, there's been a lot of sneering about Indians in Delhi recently. This <laughs> it's not just an Indian problem. Um, anyway, uh, the, 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 the building here, that, um, the buildings here of the, the ancient city of Akrotiri, a very uniform top to them. Uh, well, of course, that isn't the top. That's the, the level to which the buildings were filled with pumice and ash before the major eruption came along and just took the whole of the tops of the buildings off. And we'll come to that in a minute. Okay, but um, the major city wiped out. No bodies. Nobody has found, I think Fouquet found one body in the, in the 1860s, but basically there are no human remains on Santorini, unlike uh, the rest of, um, you know, let's say, Herculaneum and Pompeii. Okay, geological setting, very quickly. Santorini is one of the... Um, four or five volcanoes that, that form, again, in this plate boundary setting. There's the African plate going down. Um, it's uh, the most spectacular... I shouldn't say that. I beg your pardon. The most famous eruption is the Minoan one that I'm going to describe, but the most spectacular one was probably the eruption of Kos around about 160,000 years ago. 
Santorini produced about 40 cubic kilometers of, of eruptive products. Kos produced about 120, maybe 100, 120 cubic kilometers. Very large eruption. Um, so one of the reasons that we go and look at the kind of things that I'm telling you about, which is really a story of how long the Minoans had to get out, uh, but we really look at this because of what we can learn about the eruptive processes of, 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 of major uh, threats within the European continent. Uh, the general setting is unbelievable. I, 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 I could not find a picture anywhere of what I think is going on underneath volcanoes. You go to the web and say, active volcanoes or arc volcanoes, try and get a picture. Every single one of them is wrong. So I chose, I chose this... I, I, I could, well, I'll have to come to that in a minute. So this is an artistic uh, rendition by John E. Kaufman, which has the, uh, the, the plate going down. So this would be the African plate. And then melting and huge amounts of stuff coming. Now, we do understand, work done in this department, in the Department of Earth Sciences, it was coming out in Nature on October the 7th, gives the correct explanation with a picture. But we're embargoed. We're not allowed to show it to you until it comes out. So if you read Nature on October the 7th, you'll see the real picture, which is nothing to do with the crust melting at all. Um, but we don't have time to discuss it. It's really just to do with, well, no, 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 don't, no, there's no time. Anyway, difference is, but basically, it's a plate boundary setting. But we're not really worried about why, where, where the magma starts. We're worried about what happens when the volcano goes off. And you, of course, are all looking at this section here, which, again, is something we do on our Greek field trip. And you're, you've already picked out three phases, and you're wondering when I'm going to start talking about them. Uh, there are three different types of deposit here, which we'll quickly go through. But it's the first one, the, the so-called phase one, uh, the airfall deposit, which tells us how long the Minoans had to get out. Now, I could, and I've, I have done this with students, take you through a virtual field trip here and ask you to make observations, and they really are rather simple to make, uh, of the airfall. When we say airfall, we mean this is stuff that's fallen out of a large eruption cloud, angular fragments of pumice. And basically, by measuring the size of the class, the, 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 the bits and how far they've travelled away from the volcano, you can figure out how big the eruption column was. It's a straightforward piece of physics, which was actually worked out for the atomic bombs. It was worked out to, 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 to uh, relate the, the power of an atomic explosion, which, as you know, doesn't look unlike a volcanic explosion. This is Mount Pinatubo that, uh, that went off in 1991. Um, you can figure out from the distribution of sizes of things that are essentially thrown out of this cloud how high the cloud was. And there's a very simple scaling between the height of the cloud and the rate of eruption. If you think about it, just kitchen physics, the harder your kettle boils, the bigger the cloud of steam will be. So essentially, if you know how big the cloud of steam is, you know how much heat... Well, it isn't steam, it's steam and rock but you know how much heat is being generated per unit time at the bottom there. And by measuring the distribution of rocks thrown around on the surface of Santorini, we can figure out uh, that the cloud went up to a height of about 35 kilometres. No one was probably there to see it, as I'll say in a minute. Um, and we know, that because of the, the height of the cloud, we know how, much, how fast the kettle was boiling, if you like, what volume of rock was coming out, and it was about half a cubic kilometre an hour. And we know, simply by sort of adding up the volume of that, this airfall that we, I showed you a minute ago, that there's about two cubic kilometres of it. So that eruption had four or five hours. It was how long it took. Now, OK, no big deal. Clearly, 
you know, it's inconvenient to have light bits of pumice raining down on your head, on your house, and so on, but it's not going to kill you. What does kill you is the next bit. So here is the top of the airfall, and what we can see up here, and I'll sh just immediately on top of it, and I'll step back and show you a bit more with students for scale, is a sort of swirly, swaley deposit. Lots of uh, things looking wavy bits looking like this, and that's they're wavy because there's waves of superheated steam and rock shooting through at about 200 kilometers, uh, sorry, 200 meters a second, and at a temperature of a couple of hundred degrees centigrade. These are things that it really isn't very easy to survive, and what you can see rather sinisterly, and this is a beautiful example of no matter how much evolution geology has in terms of being more numerate, more mathematical, more physical, more chemical, you always get smacked in the eye sooner or later by a straightforward observation. No nonsense observation with no numbers attached or anything you can't get away from. There is the airfall, the last bit of the airfall, so the volcanic cloud, okay, and these, these superheated steam is coming through it so that we know that the eruption which lasted five and a half hours was truncated by another kind of explosion that shot off the boiling steam and rock of the kind that uh, um, entombed people in Pompeii and it occurred whilst the five and a half hour eruption was going on. So the Minoans had five and a half hours to get out and that's it. If they were there at all. But I think they weren't. And the reason that I think they weren't is if you go to the very bottom of this section, very hard to photograph. I did, I did, find a, I did have a photograph, but I've lost it. Um, it's somewhere in the move of the department. Right down at the bottom, there's a tiny, very different deposit. It's about that thick, and it looks like mud and fractured stone. And it's what is called... It's an explosion, a small explosion that blew out a little bit of steam and a little bit of rock. And these things happen quite often two or three months before the major eruption. There's absolutely no chance that the Minoans knew it was a precursor to the eruption. I'll say why in a minute. But what it did, it was about this thick, and it probably, if it was two or three months uh, before the eruption, it probably took place in April. So essentially what it did was... Um, was to wipe out all the crops. And I suspect that all they did was say, right, we're going to stay with Cousin George in Crete, and, and uh, we'll come back next year. And so that's why I think nobody saw the eruption, except possibly as a big boom, you know, a big bang and something in the distance, because they had all left. Okay, how do we know it went, took place in June? Well, we don't, June, June, the eruption was, was in the middle of the summer. We don't know that, but the, the distribution of the cloud of, of ash is suggestive of a wind that's blowing roughly in a southeasterly direction, and that only happens in the Aegean reliably in the summer. So it's not proof. There's no, there's no timing of that degree of accuracy, of, of precision of, the, of the, the date of the eruption. But if it, it's plausible that it happened in, uh, in high summer and that a small precursory eruption occurred sometime in the beginning of the growing season, people just left. So that's what I like to believe. Okay. Uh, we, I'm, I'm, running a bit, I'm running a bit late, the, the, uh, so I'll skip over some of the uh, more spectacular example of what happened after. That, that boiling stuff, that was nothing. 
And what happened next? The next two phases were what produced the next 40 kilometers of, of eruptive products that were truly spectacularly violent. The, the, the deposits are made up of powdered rock that have simply, the rock was powdered simply by boulders bashing against each other at supersonic speeds. And it would, you know, there's no chance anybody would have survived if they had been there, even after, if, if they had survived the second phase. What's left now, the classic shape of uh, Santorini, is the caldera, the hole in the ground, and it's basically the size of that hole um, uh, and a decent appreciation of, of, of how deep it is, the area and how, how deep it is, that tells us there was something like 40 cubic kilometres of stuff went off in the air. It's widely held, or at least it was until recently, and I think there's still quite a lot of violent disagreement in some quarters, that the eruption of the... Um, the Santorini volcano wiped out the, um, the Minoan civilization on Crete. I think there's absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, the, there is quite a lot of misinterpretation of geological evidence, which we don't have time to go into. The um, key work, I think, was done in the, the Research Lab of Archaeology in Oxford by, by Christopher Bronk Ramsey and his colleagues, which uh, they dated some uh, olive branches caught up in the eruption. It's pretty good. Uh, and they were, they were somewhere, the eruption was probably somewhere around 1660 to 1600 and 1610 BC, somewhere in that interval, which is a good 100, 150 years before the collapse of the Minoan civilization in Crete. I, I really think it's stretching it to, to blame the geology for the collapse of the Minoan civilization. Um, how often do these eruptions occur? What sort of hazard do we have from Santorini? Um, well, if you read the cliff face here, uh, these eruptions go off about once every 20,000 years. So we're not going to be hit by Santorini blowing up, probably, uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, Santorini will erupt, almost certainly, and work done by David Pyle in the Department of Earth Sciences here, has, it's a really beautiful study, has, has shown, um, when the, uh, shown a very good correlation between the length of the eruptions of the small eruptions that take place on the island in the middle of Santorini. These eruptions are very small, very gentle, and they are building up the new volcano that will eventually explode. The duration of these eruptions is very strongly related to the length of time since the last eruption. It's a very regular process as about a cubic kilometre of molten rock comes into here every thousand years. And they know very well when the next eruption goes off how long it will last for. If it goes off tomorrow, it'll be about three years long. So again, so it's, it's, not, it's not going to be fatal to anyone, but it's something that if you were uh, building a hotel or refurbishing your hotel in Santorini, it would be something that, that you'd pay attention to, thinking whether you can survive a three-year hiatus. Since we've told the, 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 the owners of the hotel that we go to about this, they've put off refurbishing it, which it ba <laughs> badly needs. <coughs> so anyway... No, the, person, I, I, the people I blame for the demise of the, uh, the Minoans is the, the Mycenaeans, probably, a much more warlike and, and um, efficient uh, state. Um, it's, it's claimed that the Mycenaeans themselves were, were, were wiped out by an earthquake. I can, you can find probably in, in any archaeological text uh, evidence for earthquakes destroying major civilizations. Uh, it's more plausible in um, Mycenae than, than, than some of the other places. Can anyone see the fault? There's the Lion Gate, and there's the fault on which uh, Mycenae is built. It, it, it did go off about 1100 uh, BC. There's, there's clear evidence for that in the geology, but they rebuilt afterwards. 
And, and I think probably, uh, again, having carefully read Barry Cunliffe from cover to cover last night, his, his argument is, is that, um, that, these, um, that it was probably the Sea People, and that the Sea People were, were just a bunch of pirates operating out of these beautiful little long natural harbours in western Turkey, which, of course, are all formed by those faults I was telling you about. Anyone who's been to these beautiful inlets in Turkey, the Bodrum, the Dacia, all these peninsulas, they're all bounded by faults of beautifully protected harbours. Um, how then do, we, do I have confidence in my statements that none of these earthquakes that I've been talking about, none of this business, whole business that builds the landscape, actually produces much in the way of destructive earthquakes? Well, it's one of the things that we've been able to measure, it's we, the community, has been able to measure many of the earthquakes, there must be now hundreds of earthquakes, that have taken place over the last 30 years, where a variety of space-based techniques, ground-based techniques, have been able to characterise the relationship between the length of the fault and the amount of slip that takes place on it. And what they found is a very clear correlation between the length of a fault and the area of fault that slips, the amount of movement that takes place, and therefore the magnitude of the earthquake. And really, the, the earth does not go outside a factor of about three, or maybe five, from these lines. In other words, if I have a fault, which is a typical length of fault in, in Greece, of about um, 15 kilometers long, it will fail in a magnitude six and a half earthquake. It will not fail in a magnitude 7 or a magnitude 8 earthquake. It won't give me a magnitude 4 earthquake. It'll give me a magnitude 6, 6.5. And, and that's essentially what all the faults look like in Greece. By, we, can, we can map them from a variety of space-based techniques, and, and that's what they are. They're 15 kilometres long, just about, just about the thickness of the, crust, the, the upper part of the crust, in fact. So we've got a lot of faith in, in, in Greece not delivering major destructive earthquakes. That faith may be misplaced, but it is based on a, on a logical argument. They are, however, due one. They, because we know uh, how big these earthquakes are and how, we, how much, if essentially how much of the stretching each earthquake can accommodate, and because we know how fast the stretching is going on, we know you need one of these about once every 15 years. The last of these large earthquakes in Greece took place in, within Greece took place in 1995. There were two, in fact, one in northern Greece and one in the Gulf of Corinth. So they're probably... They're, 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 I don't know whether it's going to happen tomorrow, three weeks' time, three years' time, but they're, they're, there's, there'll be another magnitude six and a half earthquake in Greece, and we understand pretty much why that's going on. Um, for what it's worth, the New Zealand, the Haiti, and the Chile earthquakes are all about magnitude seven on faults that are closer to... a. a 40, 50, 100 kilometres long, and they all fit into the same pattern. Uh, and, of course, you'll, 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 they are pretty much the same size, and you'll be aware, probably not many of you, maybe many of you missed that there was a large-ish earthquake in Chile not so long ago. The Haiti one, of course, was awful, devastating. And as far as I know, the only casualty from the New Zealand earthquake was a premature kiwi chick. Um, so there's a whole story there about engineering and, and building buildings. No one should die in a magnitude 7 earthquake smaller. But that's another, that's another talk. I'm going to close with a tale of doom and destruction. There was a bad thing that the natural world threw at us in, in Greece. This is the only truly uh, um, 
awful thing that I think the geology of Greece has thrown up in historical times. Um, I should preface what I'm about to say by saying you can read quite a number of authoritative texts by people called Professor So-and-so who have written books that will disagree with what I just said. There are a large, num large number of fictional earthquakes out there. Um, this one is not fictional. Uh, the AD, it was July the 21st in the morning, AD 365. It's, it's very well described um, in, in language that you couldn't uh, write down if you hadn't seen it happening. He said, hence many ships, this is, this is Ammianus, uh, hence many ships were stranded as if on dry land. Many men roamed without fear to the little that remained of the waters, gathered fish. We've all, alas, read stories like this after the, the uh, tsunami of 2004. But you don't make up a story like this if you haven't seen a tsunami. It just isn't what you talk about. This is not even, you know, parting of the Red Seas. This is a very clear description of what happens when the sea goes out and comes back in again from the tsunami. Killed thousands of people. Um, <coughs> goes on to say, many towns were abandoned and the place was fit only for inhabitation by hermits for hundreds of years afterwards. It was a great calamity of the Eastern Mediterranean, 3, AD 365. Um, but for many years, <coughs> we didn't really know what caused the tsunami. Tsunami is a wave of the sea. It's not an earthquake. It's, it's the sea moving around. And you can actually have quite serious tsunamis generated by slumping of sediments below the sea surface. And to be honest, the, for the longest time, that's what I thought had happened. Uh, the, sorry, the place that was wiped out was just was described as Alexandria on, on the, the Nile Delta. Huge pile of sloppy sediment, quite likely to fail, fall into the sea, make big waves. Northern Scotland was, was, was devastated by one such wave um, in about six or 8,000 BC. These, these things do happen. It's just the slumping of sediments. So that's what I thought was going on, actually, because I knew, or I thought I knew, that the, the plate boundary around the south of Greece doesn't give large earthquakes. If it did give large earthquakes, we should, have had, we should be having one every century or, or faster, just like the ordinary plate boundaries. And it doesn't give large earthquakes, and faults either give earthquakes or they don't. They don't sort of decide to give one one day and then go quiet for thousands of years. They either make earthquakes or they don't. So there's a problem there, <coughs> which essentially was solved in, by another of these slap-you-in-the-face obvious things that, that, you know, is not physical, it's not mathematical. I'll show you what it is. <coughs> it had been known for some time that the sea of the seashore of there was a <coughs> this is Crete southern Crete I'll show you a map in a minute seashore of Crete uh, showed a curious fringe here I think you can probably all see it without necessarily knowing what it is and it's uplifted marine deposits those are marine no nonsense shells and things that that, that live marine organisms in this part of Crete they're three meters below above sea level um, and we can see them around most of Western Crete, up to 10 metres above sea level. Okay, 1.2 metres. There's a great description of these by Captain Thomas Abel Brimage Spratt, an AD 1865 um, hydrography report. But anyway, um, the, the obvious uh, little, the, the unescapable, inescapable observation that, that sorts all this out for us is the size of, much less than the size of my fingers, you can see, the number of corals that we found growing on these cliffs. Now, <clears throat> aside from the fact that corals aren't supposed to grow there, they're supposed to grow in quiet water, that doesn't 
signify. They, they didn't know this. They grew in little protected holes in the cliff. And the thing about corals is two things. No nonsense. They're definitely underwater. And secondly, when they die, they hang on to their carbon very well. They don't exchange their carbon with the surroundings. So if you take these and give them to the Research Lab for Archaeology here in Oxford, they can date them for you with a precision of about 50 years. And we've got 19 of these samples, and they're all within 50 years of AD 365. So this whole thing came out of the sea in one go, all 10 metres down here, six metres up here, the pirate harbour. Another little pirate harbour up here, actually, Falasana, for those of you who know the archaeology, <coughs> came up in one, in, essentially in one go. We can't say it was a day, but it came up within 50 years of this, this earthquake. And we understand, I'm running out of time, so I won't talk you through this. We understand very well <coughs> how this takes place uh, as, as, a fault, as faults um, accumulate strain and then, then slip. And we can uh, calculate, which we, we, we've done with proper hydrographic models, we can calculate the... Um, disturbance of the seafloor that you would get as a result of an earthquake of the kind that uplifted Crete. And this is a simulation of the dis disturbance of the Mediterranean Sea. It runs for about a couple of hours, and Alexandria is just here. And the height of those waves is about the same height as the tsunami waves of the 2004 uh, Sumatra tsunami. So there's very little doubt that there's a tsunami hazard associated with faults <coughs> The, the trick is actually that, again, it isn't the fault between the plate boundary. It's a fault inside Greece. Um, <coughs> so we were right. The plate boundary doesn't give big earthquakes. But we have identified there's another system of faults that does give these large earthquakes very rarely. And those same GPS measurements that I referred to give us an estimate of how fast the uh, strain is accumulating that will ultimately be released in these earthquakes. And we can say how often uh, we should be expecting to get these tsunami earthquakes. The answer is once every 800 years. This was AD 365. There was a tsunami earthquake off Rhodes in 1303, knocked down the remains of the Pharos at, at Alexandria, the lighthouse. So you can do the maths. If you have any beachfront property in the eastern Mediterranean, I advise you to check your insurance for carefully. So, let me stop now and uh, just, uh, there's a web link there for anybody who, who uh, wants to follow things up while well, I'm still constructing the website, but there's quite, quite a lot of material there, about the, particularly about earthquakes. And just stop, I hope I've given you some kind of feel for the, the influence of um, the geology of Greece and the active geological processes which really have cha changed the country on the human timescale. Uh, how they've interacted with, with people there. Generally, I would claim in a benign way, except these two very large earthquakes, um, probably magnitude eight and a half, and have happened about once every 800 years. Of course, it is bad news if, if a magnitude six and a half earthquake knocks the chimneys off your houses or maybe even causes a fatality or two. But overall, the setting of the countryside is responsible for Greece being the... Sorry, the tectonic setting is responsible for the countryside of Greece being the way it is. Each one of these islands essentially is the top, or the, apart from the volcanoes, is the top of one of these little mountains that's just got sinking... The rest of it's sinking beneath the waves. So if you, if you like that, you've got to put up with the rest. You've got to put up with the geology. Thank you very much.